0: Live on tape from KGCR Studios in sunny Southern California, this is Glitch City Radio. Welcome, everybody, to episode four of Glitch City Radio, the podcast magazine for Glitch City, an indie games and digital arts collective based in Culver City. I'm one of your hosts, Julian Cantor, and sitting with me here today.
1: Hi, my name is Jamie Joprano, and I'm your other co-host. And next to me is our third host, Levi Rohr. Hello,
2: everyone. Levi, you're back. I'm back, I promised.
1: Very exciting times. Um, So Levi's here with us today, and he's going to be leading our guest panel this episode, which is a little bit different than what we've done in the past.
0: Yeah, uh, Levi, I'm not sure everyone's heard it, but at the end of the last episode, you were kind of teasing some changes you would bring to the show. So uh, care to reveal what those may be?
2: Yeah, so we've changed up how the panel actually works a bit.
0: I did notice that the panel's not with us right now. Nowhere to be seen.
1: Where are they?
2: They're out there in the ether somewhere.
0: Okay, I mean, I hope we're going to meet them soon.
2: We will. I actually had a chance to sit down with Tom Astle and Brendan Chung and uh, we got to talk about sustainability. Sustainability, excellent. So that's kind of like our our panel theme right we still have those we still have the theme
1: it's a little more streamlined i have a really good feeling that this is a new sustainable format that we're following
2: just do wait until the changes i have for episode five. <laughs> oh, oh boy okay all right <laughs>
0: keeping us on our toes well at least for this episode we'll sustain the format i have high confidence <laughs>
1: let's <laughs>
0: And another element that has sustained over from our previous format is our centerpiece interview segment.
1: That is 100% real.
2: We actually had our good buddy, Brendan, doing the interview this time.
0: Our previous interview subject will be conducting our interview just like before.
2: Yeah, uh, Brendan will be interviewing Adriel, Adriel Wallach.
0: Ah, I think we heard from her on Live with Laura last episode, and we'll be hearing a lot more from her this episode. So you want to get us
2: started, Levi? Uh, What's what's coming up next? Let me paint you a picture. It's going to be me. It's going to be Brendan and it's going to be Tom sitting in a room talking about life and how to live it and keep living it.
0: Sounds great. So I hope you sustain your attention through this commercial break and we'll be back with your panel discussion.
1: This episode is brought to you by Train Jam 2019, the game jam on a train.
0: Train Jam takes developers beyond their comfort zone and pushes for creative inspiration outside
2: of a regular office environment. The 52-hour annual expedition kicks off from Chicago on March 14th and rolls up to the 2019 Game Developers Conference in San Francisco on March 16th. For more information, chug on over to
0: trainjam.com or follow along on Twitter at IndieTrainJam. All aboard!
3: And we're back. I have me, me here, Brendan Chung. Hey, thanks, Levi. I'm Brendan. I run a company called Blendo Games.
2: And also, we have Tom Astle.
3: Hey, I'm an independent game developer
2: working on a pet simulation game called Wobble Dogs. Hey, amazing. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to be talking about sustainability. I love it. <laughs> that's a that's a big word. It's a it's a twenty dollar word. What does sustainability mean to you guys? Uh, the ability to keep making games and not run out of money. Like
4: like forever. Yes, forever. <laughs> there's two types, right? Because there's mental and physical sustainability, but also financial sustainability. And they don't always go together, but
2: they're both yeah. pretty important. It's hard to balance sometimes. A lot of times, you need to be like financially stable to be emotionally stable. Do you have like a priority? <laughs> I tend to always want to do emotion. Yeah, I mean, right now I would say that I am
4: pretty physically and emotionally sustainable with my development, but I haven't really made money off of the game that I'm working on yet, so financial stability is TBD. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully that works out, but yeah, it's uh, it's hard when you're working on a long-term project and haven't released it yet to kind of project into the future and It's and like strategize. a big
3: investment. Yeah, uh, sometimes a thing that you want to do or something the thing that feels right, sometimes it doesn't make money and so you gotta like figure out how to make a venn diagram of things i want to do and things that do make money and how do i
2: find that sweet spot in there is that your current strategy trying to find sustainability is like a thing you want to do but also could make money yeah
3: because we need bucks to survive and pay for our rent and food the bottom line is it just comes down to for me, at least, uh, trying to find something that people will be willing to pay for, but something that also, you know, makes me happy and trying to find that is pretty challenging sometimes.
2: Is that different than your previous works? Because I know like when I first started doing games, my whole perspective on what sustainability looks like was completely different.
3: What was your, what was that? I, what yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, like, oh
2: man, it, it was pretty much like, it was, it was like vague. you like, you don't really think about like the details, the nitty gritty details of like what it takes to be a person and have like a full life. Or, or at least there's misconceptions. Like you're like, oh, you do the game and the game does money. The only thing that you had to think about was like just being good. That was the very like young outside looking in.
3: Oh, no, definitely. Yeah. When I was at an early stage in my, life, in my career, I didn't know what I didn't know. And yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know what, what the possibility space was. And so you just kind of like make stuff and put it out there. And that's, that's what you know how to do. Yeah. Um, but then like as the years go on, you just learn more and more, like you said, the nitty gritty stuff.
4: Yeah. And I think a lot of people, going independent with game development it's a very distinct decision that you make because you want to get away from not being able to do what you want so it's not a financial decision (laughs) uh usually it probably isn't right but like people you know you, you become independent and you want to just do your own thing and make the games that you want to make and that's awesome if your tastes do line up with other people's tastes and are profitable but if you do that and make things that no one cares about it's a very emotionally taxing and it also is monetarily not great for you there's definitely a balance there that you have to figure out
2: i feel like some of the people i've talked to in this community there's a recurring theme of i'm done doing like this type of game where like it's almost like a lesson is learned sort of perspective it's like i've realized that to do this sustainably like this is the next objective you feel like it's a sacrifice or not be sustainable in your work
3: yeah i think sometimes at least for a lot of people that i know um you know in the back of your mind that if you want to be more financially stable, indie games is not where you go. (laughs) (laughs) Like, with the skill set that the people I know have, they could be having a perfectly fine nine-to-five job, you know, doing programming work, database work, uh, you know, anything that like pays really well and is nice and stable and is always in high demand, but uh, we're we're not doing that. (laughs) And and, uh, so that's kind of the challenge And like, how do you make this thing? How do you make independent games, which is not, at least in my experience, not really super known for being a bundle of bucks.
4: Yeah. Instability is almost built into the the job description. So,
2: So actually that's the question. Like in year 2019, how are you sustaining yourself? How how do you like live?
3: <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so I started in AAA, and then I had some savings um, to start my independent stuff. And so I started in two 2000- thousand for the independent work that I do so I have a an okay catalog of games that kind of bring in money so for me I'm I'm super thankful that I was very prolific at the beginning because stuff was smaller and cheaper to make so that's that's kind of been keeping me afloat for these years
2: just based on how the industry was in 2010 or in like those years it was just easier or yeah. at least you're just very thankful to be able to like make work
3: yeah yeah though like the work has become a, a nice small stream of money that kind of pays for my rent and stuff so I was kind of lucky that I got it earlier
2: what were you up to Tom then like Like, Like how do I live? Yeah, how do you live? (laughs) How are you making your
4: games? Yeah, so I mean, similarly to Brendan, I started off in AAA and built off some savings there that I've been living off of while I work on my current project. And I've done a tiny bit of contract work on the side and released one small game uh, with a friend, with Ben Esposito. Um, So that's helped a little bit with filling in the gaps there. I haven't made any money off of my main project yet because it's still in development. And I'm doing an inadvisable thing, which is to work on a huge sweeping, that's coming up on three years and probably has a while to go still. Uh, So in terms of sustainability, I'm just kind of betting on this project and trying not to do anything bad with finances in the meantime, like being very conscious of not using up all my money on this, making sure I have something left, Um, not selling my house. Yeah. Not that I have a
2: house. (laughs) So like right now you're working at a cost basically? Yeah. I'm not really bringing in
4: much passive income at the moment. So it's uh, watching the bank account drain and then hoping that this project does well enough once it comes out. So I know how much longer I can subsist off of what I have and just trying to schedule everything to come out before then obviously the dream is that you can just make your dream projects and then they make you a wild amount of money and you never have to do anything else yeah <laughs> so that would be great um but it's tough also especially when you're a solo developer because taking a few months off to do something else is a pretty big chunk of time where nothing gets done on your main project and that time still has to be made up so it's just a balancing act
3: yeah, that's something that I had you know, a lot of trouble with was, like Tom, I'm a solo developer. And when you're working by yourself, it's kind of hard to be able to recognize where you are with your mental state and where you are in you know, different healths that you have, your mental health and your physical health and everything. And I'm finally realizing is that if you really love doing what you do and you want to continue doing it, It's kind of hard to do that if you destroy yourself early in your life because what do you do 10 years from then and you're just a a husk of a person (laughs) gotta be thinking of the long game right yeah and it's kind of tough to do that sometimes because like oh this project is so important to me it's um this is going to be my thing and i love what i do and my passion is going to carry me through it but burnout is a real thing and uh it's, it's uh, something that took me a while to figure out and i'm still figuring it out definitely
4: yeah i mean i try my best to treat my self-employment as like any other job that i've ever had so i try to keep very consistent hours and i try to build in time to exercise as much as possible and try to minimize stress where where i can basically
2: those limits are very important like since I, i'm not a solo developer i have people that rely on the company it's really helpful to have other people that you have to think about and who are thinking about you because I can't work too much, because other people might work too much. We have to be stable for each other.
4: It's interesting because I think that exact phenomenon is kind of how crunch happens. So taking it in the opposite direction and being conscious about how people are seeing your work schedule and how they're reacting to that is probably a really positive thing.
3: For quadrilata cowboy, I work with China and Wales and for Flotilla Two, I work with these um cool LA developers to do level design, and it was great to have what you're talking about. I want to be a good example for them also. (laughs) And and so I started working a lot healthier once I started doing some small collaborations. And something else I did, I was kind of glad I did, was um, I made a program that collated my check-in times and made a graph of when I did my source control check-ins for subversion, and... I realized that I was just having wacky hours of like, oh, just check something in at midnight or two in the morning or five in the morning. And then there's something about seeing that graph on the screen that kind of made me realize, oh, I should probably not do that. I should probably sleep like a normal human being because like you, you kind of know in the back of your head, like oh, maybe I'm not doing this right. But then once you see like numbers in front of you mm-hmm. of how you're treating yourself, it's like oh, okay. It's nice to have the reality check.
2: We all like making video games and we we've made or we're trying to make like a life out of it. But it's like, it shouldn't necessarily be all you do. (laughs) That's the most sustainable thing,
3: at least emotionally. Coming to the realization that you are not your work is really important to me. I think it's a very easy thing to fall into and it's definitely something that I struggle with. Differentiating your work life and your not work life is really important because once they become the same thing, then if your game is not going so well, which will happen, uh, <laughs> then you just become like this miserable person, and it's it's a tough life to live. Whereas if your game like doesn't do well, then you could get over it because you have this whole other part of your life that's still doing its own thing. And the
2: time your game has gone through like, a lot of changes that roller coaster have you learned to separate yourself from your work
4: yeah i mean honestly it's something i struggle with a lot yeah, everybody says you are not your work and i think there's a lot of truth to that it's like a very healthy viewpoint to have but i'm not sure that i've 100 percent internalized that at this point but yeah it's it is incredibly important to have stuff that you do outside of your development and for me working on this game i'm very public about everything that i do which is cool when something cool happens and things are going well but it can be very hard when there are failures that you have to share publicly or things that you have to announce that you're cutting or stuff that's not working out or just like major direction changes and i've gone through all that stuff and it uh it helps when there are other things going on besides just the game in your life that you can focus on and fall back on and use a stress relief or or whatever else
2: yeah i think when there's a lot going on where i'm going to events or i'm seeing like friends i definitely feel better about my work you're able to see like a little distance from what you're doing yeah. And I think it's also fairly sobering a lot of times,
4: especially if you hang out with people that aren't in the game development fields, when career talks inevitably come up, there's so much else that they would rather talk to you about a lot of times. And I think that's a good thing to know people that don't care about your development as much as you do. It's, it's, it's
3: <laughs> positive and healthy. It's good to remember that's one niche of An entire world. Yeah, I I definitely feel that. When I'm in my Twitter bubble or my social media bubble, it's like, oh, this stuff is so important. And then you realize, oh, actually, no one's really talking about this thing. It's just all of my friends are. And, you know, there's a whole other world out there.
2: Like, honestly, like, it leads me to to think about, like, why indie? Why this life? Am I choosing it because it's the most sustainable thing? Do you want to keep being indie? Yeah. I like
3: creating stuff and I, I like making things. There is something clear about games and that after college I was trying to figure out, oh, what do I want to do with my life? Um, And, like, I knew I liked games a lot. And the thing that kind of drew me to games was that there was a clarity of, like, you make a game, you put it on the internet, people give you money, and then you (laughs) can buy food for yourself. straightforward And there was something clear about that, and other types of media felt a lot less clear. Like, if I make a movie, what do I do with this reel now? And there's something about games that just drew me to it. It's like, oh, I knew how to do this. I love it, and I think I can make this work for my life.
4: Yeah, I mean, I love Game to Development and it clicks for me and it's something that I want to keep doing for as long as I can and being independent is an avenue towards doing that that also gives me creative sustainability. When I was in my AAA job it was really enjoyable for a lot of reasons. But in the end, you're not working on your own project. You're working on someone else's project. It's everyone's project. And that's really cool. But it's not what I envisioned when I got into game development. Being indie is a path towards being able to get your own vision out there. Yeah. I mean,
2: I think that's probably like the core allure of
4: it. Well,
2: yeah. Well, anyway, Thanks, guys, for for talking with me. This was great. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, next up, Brendan, uh, you're going to be doing an interview. Yeah. I'll be talking to Adriel next. Back after this. Thank you.
3: We are talking with Adriel Wallach Welcome to the show, Adriel.
5: Thanks for having me.
3: Take me back to... Adriel, hours ago, what did you have for breakfast this morning?
5: Uh, I had scrambled eggs and then a piece of toast from some leftover bread that was from Thanksgiving that somebody made, but I can't remember who. So it was some homemade bread turned into toast and a cup of coffee.
3: It sounds like a hearty breakfast.
5: It's sort of my standard breakfast lately. It has all the things. It's got some fats, some carbs, some healthy things, I'm sure, proteins, coffee, Caffeine.
3: i know people who don't eat breakfast
5: they are wrong like objectively this isn't even a subjective thing that was one of the things because I, I was living outside of the u.s for the last four years and one of the most consistent things i missed about the u.s was american breakfast eggs toast oh. you know waffles pancakes all that kind of stuff yeah in the netherlands where i was living breakfast was like a piece of bread and a slice of cheese cold That's That's it. Yeah,
3: that's not scrambled eggs. No.
5: And so it's just, I'm glad to have breakfast back in my life.
3: So take me back to Adriel years ago as a kid. What did you have as hobbies as a teen?
5: Oh, gosh. Um, As a teen, I was really into music. I was in band. I played clarinet and piano, and I dabbled around in the flute, and I was in, like, my school's choir and stuff. And so between marching band and concert band and jazz band and choir and stuff, that was probably my biggest hobbies was just being a big nerd. (laughs) Um, And I played a bunch of video games, usually by myself. I didn't have a lot of gamer friends, quote unquote. Hmm. So those are my big hobbies was playing piano and clarinet and playing video games.
3: What was a game that you played back then that was not necessarily your favorite but one that you spent the most time on?
5: We had a game called Super Pinball for Super Nintendo that was really good and me and my sister sunk a lot of time into that. It was just like a really good pinball game. It had three different levels. One was like a Joker level and one was like a pirate themed level and there was another one whose theme I can't quite remember but it was just a really good progression between the three different levels and we played that a lot. We also played a lot of Mario paint. Oh, this had the peripheral. Yeah, right. it had this like plastic mouse pad and then a real janky mouse that didn't work really well back when the mice always had the little plastic ball in them too. That always got really dirty, but it was super good and we made a lot of animations and stuff. There's a lot of games that we played a lot of. There was a game called Uniracers.
3: Oh, is that the unicycle Yeah, thing? that was the
5: one where you played like a sentient unicycle and you raced around and did cool tricks <laughs> and it was really good <laughs> and we played that a lot. Those were probably the the most played non-favorite games. Like, there's other games (laughs) I played a lot more that have turned into some of my favorite
3: and most influential games, but those were the ones we sunk a lot of time into that just weren't, like, incredible. I feel there's something about that era where a sentient unicycle game was just normal.
5: Yeah, there was no backstory. It wasn't like they were people magically turned into unicycles. They were just...
3: They just wiggled around the world.
5: Yeah, the seats of the unicycle were their heads, and so they'd they'd get this, like, determined look on their face seat or whatever. It's not like they had eyes. It was a really good game.
3: (laughs) So at this time, were you thinking about getting into games?
5: Um, I have never known what I wanted to do with my life. I think at that time, you know, around like the Uniracers time (laughs) was more I just really liked playing games and I liked them a lot. And then it was a couple years later when I started getting into Final Fantasy and Chrono Cross and sort of larger JRPG story driven games where I started having that first hint of like, oh, it'd be really cool to create something like this that makes somebody else feel the same way that this game made me feel or try and get something that I'm thinking across to other people. I remember sitting down with the one other friend I had who played video games and we were like, oh yeah, we're gonna make our own RPG game, it's gonna be great and we would write up these characters and one was a fuzzy bear who was sad all the time and these other characters and you know, I had no idea how to make a game I was what, 12 or 13 or something. And that was sort of the first hint of wanting to make games and then for some reason I convinced myself for a really long time that normal people don't make video games, which I guess is true, but it's one of those (laughs) things where I just sort of assumed making games wasn't a real job that real people could have so then instead I went to be like an engineer yeah. Because that's a real human job. Yeah,
3: that's what people do. They yeah. get paid for
5: it. You become an engineer, you work in an office. That's what you do. That's how you <laughs> adult. <laughs>
3: So I think when I first met you, you mentioned you were working in satellites.
5: Yeah, that was way back in the
0: day.
3: Way back in the day.
5: Because it was that thing. It was be an engineer, get a real job. So I was doing software engineering. When I got out of college, I went to Lockheed Martin. I was working on a satellite there, and then I moved and worked on like the ground-processing algorithms of the same satellite at a different company. And then that's when I discovered indie games, and I was like, oh, I could just make a game. Like <laughs> That's the thing you can just do. And then I was working on that transition out, and, and eventually I did that instead. But, yeah, I, I built satellites for a while.
3: Did working on satellites give you certain skills to work on games or is it kind of not related?
5: It's related in the way where like, you know, I was programming there and I'm programming now, but there was a lot of skills that I had to unlearn. Mm. The one big satellite I worked on was literally a $12 billion project through hundreds of companies with thousands of people working on it. Oh. And so like coding standards are really high because there's so many people interfacing with what's going on and there's so many design things to be made and it's a $12 billion thing being strapped to a rocket shot into space yeah and so one of the first things I had to learn when I got into game development was that your code doesn't have to be perfect <laughs> um, it was the funniest advice I think that was ever given to me because I got my first indie job you know I'd been there for like two or three months or whatever and my boss pulled me aside and he was just like you're doing really good this isn't a complaint but you need to program faster and less good and I was just like <laughs> you know like I'm paraphrasing but it was basically what it came down to was I just had to be worse at being a programmer I was spending too much time trying to make it perfect and trying to document everything and make sure that there was zero bugs as opposed to like as few as possible.
3: It's very much not life or death.
5: Yeah, it's just, okay, the game crashes. Oh no, it's not this $12 billion thing crashed into the ocean. It was one of the funniest programming feedbacks I'd ever gotten.
3: Yeah, at least from my experience, games are all about just like iterating as fast as you can, just slamming stuff in there, seeing what sticks to the wall.
5: Whereas if you're working on something like a satellite, it's design, 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 Mm. and then you start programming maybe a little bit (laughs) later. There were days where I spent more time fixing my comments in my code than actual programming just because you had to follow such like strict standards of describing what's going on in the functions and all this kind of stuff oh my
3: god so
5: you know it was great i respect people who like that but holy moly (laughs) i'm glad to be somewhere else now
3: (laughs) i'm fascinated when people have stepped in different worlds and have different careers i can imagine that when you're in the world how do you know what the alternative is because like that's what you learned
5: and it was really scary to just be like i'm gonna take this well-paying job with benefits and retirement plan and just quit and be a contract At an indie studio where I make half as much money and I have no health insurance anymore. Yikes. So after
3: satellites, you worked at Harmonix, is
5: that right? I worked at a studio called Firehose Games in oh, okay. Boston, and we were contracted out to Harmonix for a game called Rock Band Blitz. So it was weird because it was my very first games experience, and I was at an indie studio but working on a AAA project, which was a nice little taste of both lives, which was fun. But yeah, my first game was a Harmonix game.
3: Cool. So you were the programmer. Yeah, I
5: was one of the programmers. I worked a lot on the menu system and the store, which was, was really funny because I took the, it was I think I took the Rock Band 3 store code, made it work on our game, and then even the most recent Rock Band games I've seen come out, I look at the store code and there's certain bugs where I'm like, oh god, like they're still using <laughs> the same legacy code, and I remember dealing with that and trying to fix that and then just leaving it. Uh-huh. Yeah, the store was a special, special place.
3: A uh, Pandemic, we called that poking the jello. Don't jiggle the jello, because it'll just break something on the sides. so just, <laughs> just leave it alone.
5: Yeah, there's certain times where you just have to let it just be broken. <laughs> it's just not worth it, because you're going to fix it you're going to break 12 of other things.
3: So at some point you started doing your year of making game every week. Yeah. What precipitated this act?
5: So I left the satellite industry. I worked at Firehose Games for like a year. Then I moved over to another company in Boston that was doing contract gigs with Hasbro and the Museum of Science and stuff like that, making little games. And then eventually I just want to do my own stuff. Like I don't want to work anywhere. I just want to be like solo, cool indie developer. And so I quit my job. I left Boston. I ended up being nomadic for like a year and a half, just traveling around and working on things. You know, I went into it being like, okay, I'm going to make the best game ever. been thinking about things for years and I'm just going to sit down and make something. And then that's when I quickly realized that I actually had no experience making games on my own it was only ever with teams and i only knew how to program and that was it and i got super discouraged by that and i just spent months not really doing anything just you know opening up unity looking at it closing it making a million excuses of like oh, i have to go to the grocery store today so i can't do any work for the entirety of the day obviously <laughs> eventually it just came up through talking with other developers you know why don't you just make something work on it for a week throw it out, work on something new. There was a couple articles written out there about a similar concept, and so I just started doing that. I was like, okay, well, here's a game idea. Work on it for a week, throw it out. You know, start a new game idea, work on it for a week, throw it out. And then that just sort of snowballed out of control, and I was like, I'm going to do this for a whole year, because that sounds like a good amount of time to do it, Uh, which I think was. I think it was slightly too long, because I was super burnt out by the end of it. And I would never recommend somebody do it for a whole year. There's somebody on the internet. If you go to, I think it's onegameaweek.com, and they've been doing it for like five years or something Oh my god. I don't have that kind of time (laughs) or motivation, I guess, more than anything, because I was so burnt out by the end of that year. But it was a really good crash course in figuring out all the things I didn't know about game design and game development in general. And a bunch of good ideas came out of it that I never did anything with, but they're still there, and I still look at them every now and again, being like, maybe I'll
3: take this game finally
5: and do something with it.
3: Yeah, I can imagine there must be a ton of stuff in there that you probably want to revisit at some point in your life.
5: Yeah, well, I did it for 52 weeks. There was a couple weeks where I just didn't do anything. So I came out with, I want to say, 46 or 47 games, quote unquote games. Which is a ton. And then out of those, there's probably six or seven that I think are actual good ideas that could do something with, which isn't a bad percentage.
3: I think it's a huge amount. I think even having just like a couple of them is already like a lot. (laughs) Games are hard to do. And They're so hard. Doing 48 of them in a year is bunkers.
5: To be fair, some of those 48 are unplayable. Like, not even just like I'm being coy about it, unplayable, just you actually, it's broken. You can't do anything with it. But most of them you can at least play, which is
1: nice.
3: <laughs> So Train Jam started at some point after this.
5: Well, Train Jam sort of started in the middle of all that. Okay. Because when I left Boston, the very first thing I did when I left my apartment and left everything was I got on a train and I went from Boston to Chicago to Seattle to Vancouver. It was like this week-long thing. And I don't know why I did it. I was just like, oh, this seems like a thing to do when you have no place to live and nothing to do. Get on a train.
3: I love trains. So this sounds awesome to me.
5: Yeah, it (laughs) it was perfect. And it was really good. And it was like very wistful. You know, I'd sit there and look out the window and type things and work on stuff and think about life. And when I got to the end of all that, I think it was Unite Vancouver is what I ended up at in 2013. And I was just telling people about like, oh, yeah, I took a train all the way across the country. It was like a week long. And just through conversations with people, it just kept naturally coming up of like, oh, that'd be a perfect game jam. And I was like, yeah, that would be a perfect game jam. And so then I went to Amtrak's website and figured out how to do group reservations. I only bought 30 tickets that first year and it sort of took off from there.
3: So this sounds really awesome, and it's grown so big. Now you take over the entire train. Yes. I'm wondering for those those first few years, for this logistical uh, nightmare. How, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Did you just do it? Did you just go for it and try to figure it out as you went along? So
5: that was one of my biggest things I was really nervous about the first year was, were they going to kick us off the train? And I was super upfront about that with everybody who bought a ticket. Every email I'd send out, I'd be like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know how Amtrak's going to react, but this is what we're going to do. And I scoured Amtrak's rules to see if there was anything that we weren't supposed to be doing. But when it comes down to it, we were a group reservation, which they have support for doing large group reservations. We were just a bunch of people. We were just going to be on the train working. That's not against the rules. So I was fairly confident everything was fine. But yeah, it was just we showed up. And as a big group got on the train, you know, I had these train jam fun meter buttons. And when we got on the train, there's a snack car. We had sponsorships to pay for some of the snacks and stuff. So I went down. and I was like, hey, is there any way we can do it where anybody who's wearing the train jam fun meter buttons, if they come down here and order something, you just keep track of it and I'll come down and pay you at the end of the day. Uh All the Amtrak staff was just like, yeah, you know, we could do that. I have no idea what's going on. But the sounds, (laughs) I don't see why we can't do that. And it just sort of like went from there. The second year was a very similar thing where I bought a bigger group reservation. And by then in the Amtrak world, people were sort of being like, "Okay, what are you? Who are you? What are you doing? There was a bit of pushback the first couple of years because I was bending all their rules to the breaking point. And then the third year, there was 200 of us then. I had to make three separate group reservations because their system couldn't handle (laughs) what I was doing and I couldn't get a hold of anybody. You know, I had no idea who to talk to there. But then that year was the year that the New York Times ended up interviewing me and writing an article about Train Jam. And it was literally the next day I got a call from corporate Amtrak and they were just like, hey, you want to see this thing and I just want to see how we can help facilitate you for next year and yada, yada, yada. And I was just like, well, how much does it cost to get a whole train?
3: Oh my God.
5: And she was like you know when you say whole train you know what do you mean and I'm just like I I want every seat on the train I just I want to sell out the train and I want to buy all the tickets and she was just like right, um let me get back to you and it was like a week later she called back she's like okay we you know we can work this out and it was just that one moment I think of just getting like the right news outlet to write about us in a way where Amtrak could understand what we were now I have a whole team of people at Amtrak that I talk to and it's so much less of a logistical nightmare and it's so good now I'm just like oh god what if this is the year that everybody decides trains are no longer cool and now all of a sudden I just have this whole train and nobody on it and what am I gonna do and I'm just gonna have a train party then which
3: also sounds cool yeah
5: which also would be cool like hey everybody come on my train party it's just a very expensive party (laughs) that I cannot afford
3: This sounds like a lot of work to put together. (laughs) How do you, is it just you doing it? So it's
5: me, and now I have one other person helping me out, uh, John Lindvay, who works for Darkest Dungeon. Okay. He heads up all of our, like, student initiative stuff, because we have a big student ambassador program where we work with the universities to get students on board. And he sort of keeps me in check schedule-wise and budget-wise. The majority of it is still me. I do all the sponsorship handling and all the announcements and all the organization, the interface with Amtrak, and, you know, the cultivating of the vision of what Train Jam is and then we have a couple other people who help out like uh, Becca and Adam Saltzman head up our uh, mentorship program that we started last year to help out with students and a couple other people who help day of to just sort of wrangle everybody getting on the train but yeah the majority of planning is me and John now and it does take the better part of the whole year it goes in waves so immediately after GDC the previous year Train Jam and GDC because they're sort of linked I have to talk to Amtrak and already start the negotiations for the next year because since we get a bigger train than is normal. They have to already start planning out how to get the right train cars to Chicago the next year. So there's a lot of stuff there. And then there's a couple months of nothing that I have to do for Train Jam. And then there's a couple months of really hardcore going after sponsors and meetings. And then there's a couple months of nothing. And then we have really extensive diversity initiatives to help underrepresented groups come to Train Jam and GDC. And so there's months of prep for that. And then the ticket sales are usually right after that. And then there's a couple months of nothing. And then it's a few months of just doing all the last minute, getting everything going. So it takes a bunch of time when it's active and then there's a lot of parts of the year where there's just nothing to do with it and so it's just
3: this weird sine wave throughout the year of work when the work does become a flood how do you stop that from destroying you or how do you stay sane during all that time
5: uh oh (laughs) i don't (laughs) uh i think just mentally keeping in check is just it it consumes me and then since it's like the thing everybody knows me for i worry about it all the time of like oh am i doing it the best am i doing it right am i doing everything that i should be doing and I don't know how to keep that in check. That's just a thing I deal with every year. My main method of income is contract work. Then I try to be really upfront with anybody who hires me. I'm just like, hey, there's parts during this year where I just can't work on your project. And, you know, I know about when it's going to be. Like even just this last week, I told my main contracts, I was just like, I need this week to just focus on Train Jam and we're not going to be doing any billable work. And everybody I've talked to has been pretty understanding about that because everybody knows that even though Train Jam's not my main thing all the time, it's my main thing at a lot of times. Right. And I think being upfront about that's been really helpful.
3: Yeah, I think for people who work in creative fields or you who do like fun work is that yeah, I think it's sometimes tempting to say, oh, yeah, no problem. I could do that. Right. Or like, I could squeeze that in. And so it's really refreshing to hear someone say, you know, I got to have time to yeah. do this thing.
5: It's one of those things I learned just over the years of doing contract work and stuff. It's much better to just be upfront if you can't do something than to pretend that you can squeeze everything in and do it all and not be a disaster at all <laughs> times. And, you know, I still it up all the time. Like, there's times where I just let deadlines slip and I'm like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I blah, Whatever. Yeah. But... Yeah, being upfront about all that is just so much better, ultimately.
3: Well, thanks for joining me, Angela. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Where can we find you on the internet?
5: I am on Twitter at Miss Minotaur, which is M-S-M-I-N-O-T-A-U-R. And then Train Jam is on Twitter as well at Indie Train Jam. And I'm at everything else as Miss Minotaur.
1: all
0: right and so we're back here with the three hosts episode four is now complete well done everyone
1: good job levi you Uh, did a great job hosting that panel
2: i really did my best i I talked to them and they talked to me and that's the most i could hope for made for some pretty
0: sustainable listening there and uh big shout out to adriel wallach for coming on as our interview subject i thought that was a fantastic interview that brendan conducted so check out train jam 2019 and the soundtrack that you heard during that interview, that was music from another train-related project uh, in Glitch City. Eric, uh, anyone know his online handle?
1: On Twitter, at X-P-T-N-D. Five letters.
0: And yes, no vowels among them. But... Uh, Who needs them? His game, Train Frontier Classic, an upgraded version of the Xbox Live Indie Games Classic, is
2: available on Steam. And we heard from the soundtrack there from Kevin McLeod. And thank you to our panelists, Brendan Chung and Tom Astle. Uh, you can find their Twitters at Blendo Games and at Thomas Astle, where you can uh, keep up with uh, their games like Skin Deep and Wobble Dogs as they develop.
0: Yeah, and then uh, keep sending us your voicemails. We heard from some of you last uh, episode, but. Uh, We're still doing the voicemails, even with our new format. So make sure you send those along to GlitchCityRadio at gmail.com.
1: Sounds great.
0: Uh, Any more notes before we go, Jamie?
1: Um, I want to give a big loving shout out to our Patreon subscribers for your continued support. If you're listening to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube, and you didn't already know, you can get access to our episodes a week in advance on our Patreon feed. Any donation will get you access, and every dollar helps.
0: Yeah, and there's some uh, additional bonus behind-the-scenes content there also for certain subscribers, I believe.
1: Very secret, very exclusive content um, that is uh, valuable to your everyday life.
0: Not even I know what's in it. Very secretive, only for Patreon subscribers. So definitely donate to Patreon.
1: Subscribe or die.
2: Can't put that in.
0: Maybe not literally, but uh, speaking of subscriptions, though, uh, for everyone listening, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. That really helps us out. I did notice. Since the last episode, we've gotten uh, some more ratings and reviews, so definitely appreciate that, but keep it coming.
1: We love ratings and reviews. Love them. Can't get enough of them.
2: And uh, one thing we also can't get enough is making more of these episodes, if you know what I mean. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is we'll be back next month in February, so Ah. tune in then for another episode of... Glitch City Radio. Glitch City Radio. (laughs)